Gibson, and I'm trying to sort my shit out, uh, starting with cutting down on the amount of booze I drink. So it's about finding balance, isn't it? Oh, before I forget, thank you to our sponsors, Remedy Kombucha. They make lovely live cultured fizzy drinks that are really good if you're looking for an alternative to the booze. Now, helping me out and hiding the corkscrew is Stephanie Chivers, coach, trainer and all-around supporter of anything to do with making alcohol insignificant. Hello, Stephanie. Hello. I like that, hiding the corkscrew. That could be my new catchphrase. Yeah. Of course, you don't need one for cans of Heineken, but that's a story for another time. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Our guest for this episode is actual doctor and alcohol researcher, James Morris. Hello, James. Hi there. What do you... What do you prefer, Jim, James, Dr. Morris, Doc? Uh, Jimbo, I've got all sorts of nicknames, so whatever picks your fancy is fine with me. Oh, excellent. Well, Jimbo's actually my dad's nickname, so that might just get confusing and might start telling you to fuck off. So let's not, <laughs> let's not do that. Okay. Um, welcome to the podcast, James. So uh, for the listener, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us a bit about yourself. Sure. So I'm a research fellow at uh, the Centre for Addictive Behaviours Research at London South Bank University. And um, I've kind of come a long way round to getting into academia as an alcohol researcher, although I've worked in the alcohol field in uh, lots of different roles for close to 20 years now. Um, And I did get into that because of my own personal experiences as an undergrad. So I was a kind of teenager in the 90s when the so-called sort of... uh, booze britain or peak booze as it's been called by some sort of alcohol historians that's when it was really kind of at its upper ceiling certainly in kind of recent modern history and i i sort of embraced that with both hands and oh, um, listen, i'm yeah. also part of what i call the hooch generation exactly yeah, yeah. it was one of my <laughs> first dogs. drinks yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, actually tastes like lemonade very very good idea to drink that yeah yes <laughs> um so so yeah that was my um initial experience with drinking was you know been drinking very very heavily and by the time I got to my second year of university that resulted in some physical health problems and I attempted to moderate I kind of failed not surprisingly Um, I stopped drinking I then didn't drink for most of my 20s that was never necessarily intentional and then I started working um, in alcohol related fields or public health and commissioning Um, And then sort of in my late 20s, I experimented with drinking again. And um, yeah, I've been drinking moderately for for I think about 12 years now without any problems. Um, And yeah, that kind of uh, inspired the the kind of research that I do, which is very much around the psychology of um, problem recognition. So how people come to recognise their drinking as problematic, particularly people who haven't sought help or explicitly identified their problem um but you know it's very interesting you said that you didn't see yourself as an alcoholic um you know that's specifically often what i look at is how people make sense of alcohol problems uh particularly drawing on you know those kind of common ideas or stereotypes of alcoholism in inverted commas despite it being a a kind of concept that's long been withdrawn from kind of scientific and policy fields. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's my interest really, how people make sense of, uh, and recover from alcohol problems, particularly when they don't 
kind of go down the the sort of self-identification as alcoholic or Alcoholics Anonymous route. Well, that's sort of where I all started. I started with all this, to be honest, James, because mm. I was just I was drinking every night, basically, and certainly not enough that it was impairing my ability to function the next day or anything. I wasn't getting into trouble, but it was a lot. And um, but when I started looking around at maybe how to cut down on that, there wasn't a lot of resources came in, which is where you came in, Stephanie, because mm-hmm. lucky I, I found you because you're a big fan of moderation, aren't you? Um, I don't know if I would say I'm a fan of moderation. I've got a thing about words, as you know, Ellie. Yes, yes. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> oh, it's like being on countdown. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I wouldn't describe what I support people to do as moderating. So I talk a lot about reducing, taking a break, having alcohol-free days, changing your relationship with alcohol so it isn't a problem, having an occasional drink, appropriate use of the drug, because I think moderation it's very subjective and I think a lot of people in the UK think that moderation is drinking three or four times a week you know a few glasses of wine I would want people to be drinking a little bit less than that well are you are you a fan of moderation James do you mind being like Stephanie's obviously hugely offended she's she's actually very hard to offend Um, do you do you would you mind being described as a fan of moderation or is that inaccurate no, no, I'd, I'd fully embrace that. I think, um, I mean, I totally agree with Stephanie that it's very subjective and, you know, it's very much open to some problems that, that certainly people wouldn't have if they were aiming for abstinence. And, you know, one of the very main ones is where exactly is the line? Um, mm. I mean, you know, I would generally define moderation as in line with the recommended guidelines, which, you know, for many drinkers are very low and perhaps unrealistic as they might see it certainly at that point in their kind of drinking trajectory but um yeah i think you know the the guidelines are an artificial line in the sand but the 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 stats the 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 population huge amounts of population data they're based on basically suggest that if you drink within 14 units a week or less as an average healthy adult your overall lifetime risk of an alcohol related death is less than one percent um so you know i think as a sort of general outline for for moderation um i you know say say you know refer to the guidelines but then i also think um a really important issue is that uh, lots of people I think as kind of Stephanie alluded to, maybe don't necessarily initially want abstinence or may never want abstinence. And it doesn't mean, you know, if you don't necessarily aim or get to within the guidelines, that doesn't mean you just get forget it and give up. Um, you know, that, in fact, the more you drink above the guidelines, the more valuable small reductions in, in drinking will be. So if you're drinking 50 units a week, which might be like five bottles of wine, and you cut down by five units, the, the health benefits or reduced risks are going to be much more significant than someone cutting down from 25 to 20 units a week. Um, yes. So I try, I'm, I'm trying to get my head around this. I'm thinking of it, it's like a cake. It's not like if you take one slice of cake. No, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. <laughs> I, I'm trying to think of a, of a simile and it's not happening. But basically, it's not proportional, right? The amount you reduce is not proportional to the amount of health you then increase, if that no, yeah, so the more more you go above the guidelines, the steeper the risk curve gets. Right. So if you go a little bit above the guidelines, you know, the curve is is kind of going up slightly, but not yeah. very steeply. But once you're sort of at double the recommended guidelines or more, that curve is really starting to get very dangerously sharp and vertical. 
See, you've just explained it perfectly. That's why you're a doctor and I'm not, James. <laughs> that's that's what we've learned today. Um, but yeah, I want to go back to that thing about narratives because that was the thing I found. I found that like that there was like a middle. I felt like I was somewhere in the middle of that. And and why do you think? I mean, first of all, do you think that's an accurate assessment of the situation? And if so, why do you think? How do you think we got here? And why is it problematic? Well, yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. Um, we, we I recently published a paper with some colleagues where we were arguing that there aren't narratives that resonate with people around moderation and, yeah, the, the sort of uh, alcohol problems as alcoholism is obviously the very well-known narrative around sort of certainly severe alcohol problems. Um, we do also discuss this kind of thing that we call kind of positive sobriety or new sobriety which is generally more of a kind of younger generational thing where um, there is some quite good evidence that younger generations are drinking less albeit you know still plenty many of them are drinking at worrying levels or um, are drinking quite a lot um, but and yeah but there has also been you know a kind of proliferation of communities uh, uh, you know or identities I think trying to fill that gap so I think kind of club soda or sober easters or one year no beer you know these are all trying to fill that space that's existed for a long time in terms of um well you know the the idea that either you're alcoholic and you give up altogether or you just kind of forget it and carry on with your life stephanie do you ever worry though as someone who's worked with a lot of people often with very severe problems with alcohol do you worry that if we if we now push this new story of actually maybe you can have a few drinks and it's all fine are you concerned that that will have a negative impact on people who maybe maybe that isn't actually a good idea for them no not at all I mean I'm not concerned but I think the noise out there is that some people are concerned but this is the problem it doesn't matter which way you look at it so if people in alcohol free groups people are saying that it's not possible to moderate that's not the fact there's a narrative around I can't moderate so therefore you can't moderate and that's the same as it was years ago you know with 12 step well if you're not doing 12 step then you're not in recovery it's this whole thing about coming from your own personal viewpoint that's not the case Mm. you know everybody's different and a lot of people do just naturally moderate anyway I think it is it's only 20 I say only 25% of the population that drink more than the recommended guidelines anyway which tells us that 75% of the population are drinking below recommended guidelines. Below the 14 units a week. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how we actually know this anyway, specifically. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I would (laughs) say more than Um, 25% of the people I know are drinking more than the (laughs) recommended guidelines because I live in Britain. Yeah, yeah, but who knows? Why is language so important when we're talking about... um, alcohol like stephanie i know doesn't like you don't like labels uh do you stephanie i don't but no i don't because it's this whole thing about like we were talking um alcoholic that comes up quite a lot doesn't it you know and people talk about oh that's the addict brain that's something that comes up a lot in my work and it's like no it's not the addict brain it's the human brain this is the human experience Mm. you know so i think we use labels if it works for us Mm. but we don't have to it's like a lot of people come to me and they say am i an alcoholic and i'm like well is it motivating for you to use that word? How does it support you? You know, what benefit is that to you? You can be a human being who's drinking alcohol and that's causing you a problem. Mm. And then we can, you know, work to reduce that. Yeah. What do you think about that, James? Do you think lab- labels are helpful? Um, well, they can be for some people, but yeah, I'd agree with Stephanie. I think, you know, from a sort of psychological point of view, we're sense-making beings and 
you know, language is obviously the way in which we try and make sense of the world in terms of, you know, how we kind of uh, piece things together and attach meaning and understanding to different ideas and concepts. And labels are reductionism, essentially. Um, you know, um, it's, it's kind of like the, the famous Mencken quote, you know, for every complex solution, there's a simple explanation, neat, plausible and wrong. You know, like the, the more we distill something down to a one word label, the less it's going to capture all the complexity and nuance behind that. And, you know, the research is so clear that alcohol problems are so nuanced and so heterogeneous. They come in so many shapes and sizes and forms and um, they vary. They're dynamic. They, they change throughout people's life courses and they're interacting with our environments, our experiences, our, our biology. And, you know, again, as, as Stephanie says, you know, the brain is, you know, we've had got kind of a few decades of, um, I think, overemphasis on brain science because it's alluring and it's attractive and, and it appeals to people to think that we can just, you know, find this part of the brain that lights up and therefore find what the inverted commas problem and solution is. But of course, you know, I think alcohol and addiction problems on the whole are problems of living. They're about our, our relationships, our life experiences and how we process what's happened in the past present and will do in the future so yeah labels can be dangerous and they are reductionism albeit that for some people it is useful and particularly in the context of AA because if someone identifies as an alcoholic they're really owning they're really kind of confronting the fact that they have a problem with alcohol and they're really kind of committing to abstinence and ongoing peer support and for a a subset of people with alcohol problems you know perhaps a fairly small subset but certainly um, for people with severe alcohol problems or long histories of alcohol dependence and perhaps failure to kind of uh, rein that in then then self-labeling can be really Mm. useful. So where where do you start then? If you say there is a lot of research out there about different, you know, that how the brain works and all this other stuff, and you know, if you're if you're thinking I might have a problem, and as you're saying, there's many different reasons where that may, might be. It might be to do with past trauma, or it might be to do with your current living situation. It can feel a bit maybe like blind. You can feel a bit blindsided by the volume of stuff out there. Where where would you advise people to start? Um, yeah, it's a really good question, and. Um yeah, I think, you know, something like Alcohol Change UK has quite a good sort of hub for, you know, starting point. I mean, you said at the start I could plug something at the end, but uh, <laughs> no if I, could, I could do it at the start. Yeah, so no, I, it's not the yeah. BBC. So I've got, a, I've got a podcast called the Alcohol Problem Podcast where where I should try and unpick some of the kind of common issues uh, that, that kind of for, for a general audience that might try and uh, disentangle that. But yeah, I, I, actually, I don't I don't really know. I don't think there is uh, an ideal one stop shop for for those kind of answers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I uh, had an episode of your podcast about dry January and basically <laughs> whether it's whether it's worth doing. What did you conclude? Hmm. Yeah. So the, the evidence is still fairly formative, but I think there's good evidence evidence that that certainly the physical biomarkers for things like liver damage or um, 
you know, great signs of, of risk of cancers developing, you know, that you see real differences or reductions in those in people who are drinking above the guidelines and take a month off. The question is, to what extent, you know, if you then just go back to your normal drinking habits, does everything just kind of go back to how it was? And therefore, it's not really making a big difference. But the sort of more promising evidence, I think, is that um, a good proportion of people sustain a reduced level of drinking uh, certainly at six months after taking part in dry January so um, I think it's important both you know for people who maybe um, yeah just kind of want to reduce their risk and maybe cut down their drinking a bit it's a good way of um, you know kind of setting off in that direction and it might be a good litmus test for people who are worried about psychological dependence or habit or whatever you want to call it and then obviously a caveat around if if anyone does have physical dependence then they need to kind of seek medical help or advice first because it can be dangerous to withdraw unplanned or without medical support if you do have physical dependence but that's a very small proportion of of the population yeah I, I like to do what I like to call moist January which is just mm. you know again all about balance just just slightly damp for most of the yeah. month that's my dream there hasn't been moderation march yet but uh I oh yeah wonder whether that's a, oh, <laughs> an, like a missed opportunity oh yes. yeah ellie what moderation march i think yeah. we should go for it we should yeah. invent a thing yeah. that's, yeah, go for it. that's what the world needs more hashtags <laughs> um <laughs> also i have done that in the past i have done the thing of giving up uh for a month and I know I can do that I've been quite good at that especially if I've got a thing to do it um, I did it for example before I ran the London Marathon a thing mm. that I don't like to talk about more than three or four times an hour but I did run it <laughs> turns out it's quite a long way um, so yes I have done that and I have found sometimes often, often, always when I've done it right when I've done the month off, I've felt better. Definitely, I've slept better Ooh. and my skin looks better. All the things you hear, all the good reasons to stop drinking, I've had more money, all of that stuff. And I've got, this is brilliant, isn't it? And usually within about a fortnight, I've gone, if not fully back to the pre-dry month situation, definitely things are not where I planned they would be three weeks previously. Um, so, Stephanie, is that something you hear a lot? Because I know you like to encourage people to have at least a period of abstinence when you start working with them. Yeah, sometimes it depends. Like sometimes people come to me, they're not sure what they want to do. And I listen to what they're drinking at the moment, the patterns, why they're drinking, their history, you know, all the risk stuff and impact. And then I'll, you know, sometimes I need to say to somebody, you you need to consider a period of abstinence. But sometimes when you do that, people really struggle to actually be alcohol free. And what you can then do is work with them to reduce and drink less. Because what I've seen is some people come to me and they're like, what's wrong with me? I can't be abstinent when actually they don't need to be abstinent they're drinking a couple of glasses of wine you know a couple of times a week it's not causing them any problems but then they're giving themselves a hard time because they can't be abstinent you know they're like oh what's wrong with me I've signed up for one year no beer or I've signed up for dry January and I just can't do it and you can hear them beating themselves up and you're like oh my god just stop stop mm. you know you're, you're drinking what 12 units a week you know from what James was saying you know, that's how he would describe moderating sort of the government recommending guidelines. That's great. Mm. Carry on. So it goes back to this thing where it's quite an individual thing, really. Do you know what the UK's number one kombucha is? Me neither. In fact, I didn't even know there are people who keep track of these things, to be honest. But it turns out it's remedy kombucha. I'm not surprised, actually, because I've been drinking their fizzy pop for ages and it's delicious. 
no artificial sweeteners and no sugars, thanks to the long age brewing process. I drink them a lot when I'm on tour and trying not to consume too much booze, as they feel like a proper grown-up drink, so they're a great alternative. Mango passion, raspberry lemonade, ginger lemon, wild berry. Look, if there isn't a flavour in that lot that doesn't tempt you, I can't help you. So give Remedy Kombucha a go. It's available now from Morrison's, Tesco, Amazon, Ocado, Holland & Barrett and RemedyDrinks.com. Cheers! You were saying earlier, James, that you had a long period where you didn't drink years, where you didn't drink hmm. at all, and then you kind of got back into it. Was that a conscious decision or was there an event or a circumstance that triggered that? Or what, what was your story? It was a very conscious decision. Um, I think I probably said I experimented with it because, um, yeah, when I stopped drinking, I never really planned to never drink again. And I did go to AA for a bit and I really valued the social network support of it it was the first time that I'd found uh, a group of people that were supporting me in my decision to not drink at that time whereas most or a lot of my peer group at that time were very discouraging of me making a decision to not drink um you know because obviously it was threatening the kind of group norms or you know raising question marks about <laughs> their drinking uh, unintentionally uh, and i think that's something that that's very commonly reported this kind of social pressure to to conform and changing being very difficult within that social context um but yeah i just i think you know because i originally stopped because of the physical health problems that my drinking had caused me um but then i began to realize how much i was craving or felt dependent on alcohol to do certain things or you, you know just in terms of socializing or how i thought i'd have fun it just felt really difficult that um i couldn't you know before i stopped envisaging a life without drinking was 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 scary and unfathomable um so yeah just it just kind of went on and in in, in hindsight or after i'd stopped drinking i realized how much of a, a kind of a grip it had on my life um or how much i just felt like i kind of needed it and so it wasn't really ever really planned but yeah probably after 4 years or so i felt like um actually you know i don't think i ne- i can I, I think I probably could drink again, but I wasn't sure. Um, and then I became more and more aware of the, the sort of the idea that, that that moderation is possible. You know, I think to some degree I, you know, had bought into the narrative that because I'd had a bit of a problem, you know, the only safe thing to do was to never drink again. Um, uh, so yeah, I contemplated it for several years. I did more research around the area. And then, yeah, I think the key, one of the key things for achieving moderation or controlled drinking, certainly within a treatment context, is having very clear definitions about, uh, you know, going back to what we were saying at the start about what counts as moderation and being really clear about, um, you know, under what conditions or circumstances and having drink refusal skills and not giving yourself, um, you know, tricking yourself into permissions to break those rules. Um, but yeah, I, I tentatively and very deliberately started drinking again, yeah, within the guidelines on the basis that if I started to feel like, you know, craving or that I was kind of really looking forward to 
to drinking again or wanted to drink more than I was allowed to, that I'd just go back to abstinence. And I think crucially at that point, I was very, you know, I got to a point where I was happy without alcohol. So I felt like going back to abstinence wouldn't be a problem. Um, So it was an experiment in a way and it was very deliberate, but yeah, it it kind of went fine. I I just, I just quickly say the other thing that I did in that period or, uh, you know, had started during that period of abstinence was psychotherapy, where I think I worked on and addressed a lot of the issues that led to me, you know, having very self-destructive or heavy drinking patterns in the first place. Mm, Yeah. So we know that often drinking too much is to do with trauma and stuff. Does everybody wants to cut down on drinking or cut it out? Does everyone need therapy, Stephanie? No, I don't think so. Not everybody needs it. But what is really interesting about what James is saying is he's he did the work, but the lifestyle stuff, but the internal stuff as well, that meant when he did come back to drinking, he wasn't, you know, it wasn't an issue because he wasn't using alcohol to cope with these different things. And there's many ways to tackle that. So if alcohol is a problem for you and you have a period of abstinence, then what we want, what I talk about is the inside stuff and the outside stuff. So go do the wedding without booze, you know, date without booze, you know, all that type of stuff. So you learn how to do it, but also work on, you know, how do you think, how do you feel, how do you deal with that? You know, what stories do you create? You know, what it means to be human, that type of stuff. And then you, you're just more well-rounded, I suppose, more, we call it a mindset change, but that's another one of those like journey. That sounds awfully like a label, Stephanie, if you don't mind me saying. (laughs) But then what you find is um, when people come back to drinking, that it just isn't as much as an issue for them. They can moderate, they can have one or two drinks. Yeah, I think I think I'm sort of maybe finding a bit I've been missing here a bit because Ooh. that thing you were saying. I know I'm having a light bulb moment. Oh, I can oh, see it. Oh, it's I like, like Oprah's it. in the room. Um, <laughs> because that thing you said just now, James, about you know the whole no, I can never have a drink again thing, right? Which I know a lot of people say, and I'm sure that is true for a lot of people, and, and probably a very healthy thing to have in your brain. Now I have that thing, but about smoking, I used to smoke a lot of cigarettes. People would be amazed to hear. Who would have thought it? <laughs> Someone who likes a drink actually used to smoke a load of fags as well. Um, and then I gave up. Uh, gosh, before my children were born, uh, when I was about 30, I gave up on the on the day Nintendo Wii Fit came out. But anyway, that's an aside. Um, and I and I tried to give up a few times. And then I tried things like, I'll only smoke when I go to the pub. Consequently, I was in the pub every night. Or, you know, I did all the, all that. Oh, I'll just, I'm, I've done, I've done it for three weeks. I can have one cigarette. No, you can't because the next day I have 25. I did all of that. And then I read the Alan Carr book, uh, He's one of my favourite comedians. No, <laughs> the Alan Carmack and How to Stop Smoking. And that did change, I think, what you're saying, although I, I didn't know this, it changed my mindset. You know, his thing of like, I got my head around the idea that you're not smoking actually because it's nice. Mm-hmm. Um, you're smoking to fulfil a need for nicotine that's been created by the cigarettes. Mm-hmm. There is a chicken and egg situation here and, and it is very clear what came from us. Anyway... Now, when I had, I remember as I took his advice in the book, which is you you pick a date in advance and you go on that day, I'm having my last cigarette. And I did. Uh, I had it on a balcony in Spain. I remember it so well. Sounds romantic. I was incredibly <laughs> drunk, Stephanie, sorry. And uh, it was very romantic. And I told the people I was with it was my last cigarette. And it did transpire to be my last cigarette. Ooh. And I know that I could never have any again. My point is, because I had that experience with smoking, I do sometimes worry that that 
is what I should probably do with drinking. I should just go, this is my going to be my last drink because I find it sometimes easier to just go, that's the rule and I'm not doing that. I don't have to piss around with not drinking at home, not drinking on Mondays or, you know, but actually smoking and booze are different drugs, Stephanie. Are they? I would say they're different animals, really, very much so, because I'm not saying that alcohol isn't damaging to our physical and emotional well-being. It absolutely is, but it's it's not as straightforward as tobacco. Like we, if you smoke tobacco, it you know it's pretty clear that you're going to be ill. Maybe unless there's something incredibly genetically resilient about you. You know, we all know those people that are 80 and still yeah. smoke stuff like that. So tobacco is far more dangerous in terms of physical health. It's a lot clearer. With alcohol, it, I mean, yeah, there are lots and lots of risks, but you know, because you haven't, you don't drink consistently, not everybody, you know, your drinking goes up, it goes down, you have breaks, all those types of things, how we eat, you know, how much water we drink, our exercise, our lifestyle, all of that are factors in that and our genetics as well. Mm. So I do think they are very different. And also tobacco, it's not social anymore. It's not socially yeah. acceptable. It's very different, isn't it? You, you, when you have a drink, it is socially acceptable and it's a sociable thing. So it's a very, very different mm. drug. And whereas with tobacco, it's, you know, I'm sure there are people that have the occasional cigarette, but it's, it's a lot easier to not smoke. And why would you have an occasional cigarette anyway? You know, it, it's not socially acceptable. It doesn't taste nice. Whereas to have an occasional drink, that makes sense. I don't know. What do you think, James? Yeah, I'd agree. Yeah. I mean, nicotine is famously very addictive or, you know, smoking is, um, there's a a famous original, um, early tobacco researcher. I can't remember his name, but he said people, um, smoke for the nicotine and die from the tar. Um, but yeah, it's, it's famously addictive and famously harmful. And yeah, because of the cultural normalization around alcohol, the, the, the harms or risks from alcohol are very much underestimated or at least the harms from yeah kind of drinking at levels that many people think are in inverted commas safe when it's not because they often draw on this stereotype of a problem drinker as an alcoholic on a park bench who needs to drink in the morning um you know that serves that, that helps to uh helps many people who are heavy drinkers to think well I'm all right because I'm not like that person you know we sort of call it othering and it happens in lots of different domains but yeah yeah smoking is famously addictive and obviously alcohol dependence um you, you know can be can be a, a very strong um form of addiction although dependence and addiction are slightly different things um but it can take, you know, longer to develop and even people with dependence or heavy drinking can find a lot of social acceptance, um, particularly in their, their own peer groups. Um, so yeah, I'd agree that, um, yeah, yes, smoking. Absolutely. I think even the health risks of, of small amounts of cigarettes are comparable to, to smoking a lot more, whereas you don't see that same dose response curve as you do with alcohol where's such a clear relationship between dose and harm based on all your research obviously you've worked in this field for a long time james you know loads about this stuff and you know we've talked about different narratives what changes would you like to see either in the like in terms of government policy around alcohol or in terms of people who are working in the healthcare field how they deal with alcohol issues Mm, good question. Yeah, so the, so some, my background is in policy and there's some really important 
stuff that, again, just unequivocally, we know that um, pricing, availability and marketing do influence consumption. Um, you know, there's, there's kind of... Uh, thousands of studies across the world where changes in price or advertising or whatever you know can be associated with changes in in population level consumption um so that's the kind of the top level stuff that shapes culture you know often you you, you might hear kind of critics or other people just say no we just need more education or we just need to change the culture but you know changing the culture comes from changing legislation um and you know more education doesn't necessarily work if you're still in an environment that's highly saturated with normalizing messages around drinking or whatever so there's definitely really important stuff that, that england's really lagging behind um on you know scotland have had minimum in minimum unit pricing in place for a few years now and uh the evidence isn't probably as clear you know there the evidence does point to um you know positive impacts as a result of that particularly compared to england where minimum pricing wasn't introduced you know think about on trade like pubs and bars you know they've they're in theory regulated environments you know the bar server shouldn't sell someone if they're intoxicated and the price that they're paying per unit is going to be far higher so a lot of the the big rise in problems we've had is directly related to the big shift in into where most alcohol is now bought from supermarkets at very cheap prices so you can go and buy you know, a litre of vodka for, you know, not that much money. And, you know, what you do behind closed doors, you know, um, is, is an unregulated environment. So I think, you know, it's not a perfect solution. You know, we need other stuff as well. But but certainly reining in the kind of alcogenic environment, which is, you know, massively normalised and accessible and cheap and available, etc., is definitely a, a kind of longer term solution to kind of reining in the levels of problems that we see at a population level. Yeah, but then are we not just punishing the poor of society? Because rich people who can afford to will, will just will just pay the extra 10 quid or whatever, won't they? Well, that's, yeah, that's something that the alcohol industry have certainly been very keen to. Oh, no, kind of so, I'm, done, and, I'm working for the man. Oh, no, I'm not on the payroll. Yeah. Honestly, James, I'm not. And, and I mean, it's, a, it's it, you know, it, it's intuitively logical. And, um, you know, like people don't want to feel like they're being told what to do by the so-called nanny state. Um, and, and there is some degree of truth in that, that obviously the more disposable income you have, the less you might be sensitive to price changes. But, you know, the evidence is just really clear that heavy drinkers as a group are sensitive to price changes and, uh, you know, increasing that price does result in heavy drinkers in particular making reductions because they're spending more of their, their, their budget on, on alcohol. And that does result in, uh, longer term or even, you know, a couple of years, you might start to see falls in alcohol related hospital admissions as well as other indices of harm. Well, there we go. Actual scientific research and data contradicting my anecdotal thoughts <laughs> and vague suspicions. Unbelievable, Stephanie. Yeah, unbelievable. Who Amazing scenes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, James. Now, we do like to end the podcast by asking our guest for a nugget of wisdom. So it's a key thing you want to share, whether it's a personal experience or, you know, a, an anecdote or a piece of advice or information, something that you'd like the listener to take away for a little nugget they can hold on to and treasure 
I don't think I'm very good at nuggets. You know, I tend to talk, talk at Everyone's length, got but... a nugget in them. It's like, it doesn't matter how big. It's like everyone says they've got a novel in them. I've got a filthy limerick. But you come on. I know there's something I, in there. I think it's it's just about really being honest about your motivations for drinking, really understanding, you know, what it is that you, you kind of believe or do enjoy about alcohol and really being mindful around that that's that's the kind of key thing that you know it's it's easy to get tricked by the the normalization the cultural acceptability of alcohol as what we know is a drug um you know as adrian charles says it's the only drug you have to apologize for not taking so i think just just yeah putting it into context by really being honest about what we get from alcohol and why we drink can be a really useful starting point and hopefully you'll somehow accept that as a nugget that that's an acceptable <laughs> nugget i will accept your nugget i will put Good. it in the bucket of nuggets that i keep in the corner of the podcast studio <laughs> Okay, uh, the bucket has another use just in case we get locked in, but that's the story of another time. Um, lovely. Uh, Stephanie, have you a nugget you'd like to put in what I'm now going to call the nugget bucket, which Ooh. I wish I'd thought of earlier in the series? Yeah. Have you got a nugget for the bucket? That we're all different, essentially. So if you're thinking about, you know, have I got a problem with alcohol? I'm not sure where I fit. You know, do I want to be alcohol free? Do I want to reduce? Try not to get caught up in the narratives like we've been talking about today. and you know, maybe it doesn't have to be me, but reach out and talk to somebody who's qualified in this area, a counsellor, a coach, and have that conversation. You know, most good practitioners will do a free consultation just to figure out what is going on for you and what you want to do. Yes. So yeah, it doesn't have to be Stephanie, but definitely don't make it me because I don't know anything (laughs) about anything as I think we've already established, not least in this episode. But Dr. James Morris, you know loads about loads of things. So thank you very much for joining us. Is there anything you'd like to plug or where can people follow you? That sort of thing. Uh, well, I've got the plug in already for the Alcohol Problem podcast. Do it again. <laughs> Thank you, which is available on all good podcast players. Um, uh, other than that, no, uh, thanks for having me on the show. Oh, well, thank you very much. Uh, Stephanie, do you want to plug your things? Oh, I'm Stephanie Chivers and I support people how to change their relationship with alcohol. And I do that in lots of different ways. So online coaching program, group programs, one-to-one. So look me up, Stephanie Chivers or womenwhodontdrink.com. Thank Excellent. you, Ellie. You're, you're welcome. Anytime. But that's enough now. Stop now. <laughs> go, go and polish your nuggets. Yeah. Ready for the next episode. <laughs> So thank you to our excellent guest and thank you very much for listening. In the next episode, we'll be talking to Jo Bevilacqua, a woman who's gone from booze binger to moderate drinker. She'll tell us how she did it and Stephanie will give us her top tips for cutting down in the long term. Bye-bye. Follow us on social media. We're at SISO Podcast on Instagram, that's S-Y-S-O Podcast, or just at SISO Pod on Twitter and Facebook. Sort Your Shit Out was devised and presented by me, Ellie Gibson, with Stephanie Chivers. The music is by John Thorne and it was produced by Laura Grimshaw. Thank you to Remedy Kombucha for sponsoring the podcast. For more information, go to remedydrinks.com. Hi, my name is Kay Adams and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process. So I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.